One of these days and it won't be long I'll rejoin them in a song I'm gonna join the family circle at the throne Oh no, the circle won't be broken By and by, Lord, by and by Dancing bass In the sky Oh, you're welcome, Bill. This is hell. First, I want to apologize for the lead in music not having beans as a topic. We cannot, we will not, and we definitely should not return to normal. After we're all shot up with vaccines and have attained herd immunity, we cannot, because of the number of people who have died, we just cannot return to that normal. Those we have lost in the U.S., which will be more than a half a million. An estimate that epidemiologist Rob Wallace made on our show way back in March of last year, when everyone else was reporting what President Trump was calling good numbers of dead at only 70,000. Many will not be able to go back to normal either because their job no longer exists or their business failed or they were infected and have lifelong health problems. As the Hartford Current reported on Friday, COVID-19 long haulers, that's COVID patients who were hospitalized for a period of time with the virus, struggle with persistent mental health issues, brain fog, anxiety, depression, sleep disorders. Starting to wonder if maybe I already had COVID. And if that normal is what got us here in the first place, we definitely should not go back to normal because that would mean an endless litany of virus after disease, after pandemic, more lockdowns, more races to a vaccine, more unequal distributions of health services, more suffering and more death. We will discuss the potential legacy of the nightmare we found we find ourselves in in a few with cultural theorist Lynn Paramore, who wrote the article, Epidemic of Despair Could Haunt America Long After COVID. Researchers worry the pandemic may have severe after effects with deaths of despair impacting more distressed and newly vulnerable populations. Lynn's writing was posted at the Institution for New Economic Thinking at their website, which you can find at ineteconomics.org that's i-n-e-t economics.org and where Lynn is senior research analyst. Lynn studies the intersection of culture and economics and is a contributing editor at Alternet where she received the Bill Moyers Schumann Foundation Fellowship in Journalism for 2012. Lynn's first book of cultural history, Reading the Sphinx, Ancient Egypt and 19th century literary culture was named a notable scholarly book for 2008 by the Chronicle of Higher Education. Lynn has collaborated with some of the country's leading economists on her ebooks, including New Economic Visions with past guest here on This Is Helgar Alperovitz. In 2011, Lynn co-edited a key documentary book on the Occupy movement, The 99%, How the Occupy Movement is Changing America. You can follow Lynn on Twitter at Lynn Paramore. That's Paramore with two R's. I'm your Bitter Blind Broke Gap Tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? Uh, you like it when the snow gets a little bit of crust on top? I love Ooh, that. It's wonderful. I love when it crushes through. It kind of breaks through like it's creme brulee. Yeah, it's all, all I have going for me is uh, walking through some creme brulee snow <laughs> with my dog. <laughs> my weekend, like yours, is very cold. So we live in a park in a three-flat on the top floor, and we're not that far from Lake Michigan, maybe a couple miles at the most. And the wind comes off the lake and off the park, goes right through our uninsulated windows. We our, our windows are as old as our building, and they really need to be replaced. And our roof isn't insulated, and we're too cheap to heat the front interior stairwell, so we turn off the radiator out there. So even when you're in the front stairwell, you can actually see your frozen breath. So my weekend was really, really cold. However, if you want to avoid the crowds when grocery shopping... Apparently, you should go when the temperature is in the single digits with the wind chill about 15 below because that's what we did Saturday night and the stores were completely empty. I was right next to your house going to the couple of stores right by the strip mall near you, Alex, and there was nobody in there. I think in the entire strip mall, there may have been 
a dozen cars, 10 cars maybe. And with, with this week, the high temperatures in Chicago are not even supposed to reach the average low. So if you're like me and freaked out about shopping because of the virus, this will be a great week to go to the store and avoid the crowds. More importantly, Alex, what is this week's question from hell? Uh, this week's question from hell is, what are you awake thinking about at 3 o'clock in the damn morning? Going to the store and uh, grocery shopping because nobody will be there? That's what I'm thinking about. The question from hell again, what are you awake thinking about at 3 o'clock in the damn morning? We'll have some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guest. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can check out all our merchandise right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support, where you can see all the ways you can contribute to completely listener-supported This Is Hell. Remember, without you, we got nothing, so thanks to all of you for your support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us, but we must have your answer by the end of Thursday's show when we are announcing this week winner. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover, this is hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is taking a dip in the Atlantic Ocean. Not the Pacific, not the Mediterranean, just go to the Atlantic Ocean. The early January article at The Guardian with the headline, Reader's Hangover Cures, 10 Ways to Beat the Post Blues Ooh, I'm going to get this right one one of these 10 ways. Mm -hmm. 10 ways to beat the post-booze blues from Radiohead to Roll Mop Vinegar, quotes Joe Callanan, a counselor and DJ from the Netherlands, explaining, (laughs) My family is originally from Sligo on the northwest coast of Ireland, and after a night out drinking with my brothers, the only thing that could shift my hangover would be getting in the North Atlantic. (laughs) It was like magic. Five or 10 minutes, and the hangover was miraculously banished. Banished. Fantastic. So that makes this week's Hangover Cure taking a dip in the Atlantic Ocean. I'm surprised he didn't say shunned. I shunned that hangover. He actually banished it. He set it off into exile. Putting people before profits since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to contribute to our horrible business model of putting people before profits, you can... Sorry, I'm doing this wrong again. Yeah. Our horrible business model of putting people before profits. It's a really dumb idea. You can go to thisishell.com and click on support to find all the ways to help out your friends here. Completely listener-supported This Is Hell. One way you can contribute is to become a Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell. The Patreon podcast happens each and every Friday at 10 a.m. Chicago time and is podcast shortly after at the same place. All you have to do is go to patreon.com slash thisishell, sign up, and you will get immediate access to over 150 Patreon podcasts. It's like an entire extra year of This Is Hell with monologues by me, classic interviews that you cannot find anywhere else but on Patreon. And on this past Friday's Patreon podcast, we shared one of our two interviews that we have done with the late... Christopher Hitchens, whose book, The Trial of Henry Kissinger, had just been published. Christopher had been on the previous year when we talked about his 1999 title, No One Left to Lie to, The Triangulations of William Jefferson Clinton. You can hear that conversation on Patreon as well as we already shared that discussion in the past on Patreon. So just go to patreon.com slash thisishell and search on Hitchens and you can find both of the interviews we've done with Christopher. Christopher was amazing on This Is Hell. Uh, then he turned that condescension that I found so charming on the anti-Iraq war crowd, and for whatever reason, we never had him on again. But he really was great when we had him on to both take down Henry Kissinger and President Clinton, and he was wonderfully harsh and absolutely hilarious about it. Meanwhile, despite the lies of those in the media and politics, these times actually do have a precedent. In fact, There were three ongoing pandemics when this pandemic made it four, and Spellcheck still thinks the plural pandemics is not a word. These times are deadly certain. We are definitely not all in this together. Unity divides us. Democracy has not prevailed. This is America, and getting back to normal is joining a suicide cult. In other words, all those stupid, trite cliches that we've had drilled into our heads are nothing more than brainwashed ramblings of propagandists. Even if they are so brainwashed, they don't even realize that they're spinning propaganda. It's as if they actually believe the goal of journalism is to defend the status quo, that is, the existing state of affairs that includes perpetuating institutional racism, massive inequality, intense exploitation, deadly pandemics, 
climate change, police violence, wars, and on and on and on. But you can only hear our 2001 talk with the late Christopher Hitchens, an analysis of all the purposeful disinformation we've been fed since the coronavirus came to the United States by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Listen to our exclusive Patreon podcast every Friday, live at 10 a.m. Chicago time, podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. Shortly after, we want to thank Kevin B. for joining us as our newest subscriber on Patreon. Thanks, Kevin B. Now, immediately following last Thursday's live streaming show here at ThisIsHell.com, we got a very, very, very kind email from listener Rob S., who wrote to us at Chuck at ThisIsHell.com about my failed attempt at getting a new office chair, because I, I think the antique wooden chair at my house, which is, I think, older than my building, which is almost 100 years old, is contributing to my horrible back pain from an injury I got a long time ago. My plan was to go buy a new chair over the last few weekends, but something has come up every time. As for my back, I was scheduled to start physical therapy, and then the virus outbreak happened, and I've been in pain ever since, even missing a few shows because it got really, really bad. Well, Rob heard my complaints, and he writes, Hey, did you buy an office chair? Do you want one with wheels? I started working from home in March 2020, and my home office chair was killing me after a month. I will absolutely buy you a new chair like mine and have it delivered. I've been making a ton of overtime money as my IT job is related to COVID vaccine distribution. I've been wanting to do some good things for other people with, with the money because it feels effed up to make more money than ever before in my life because of the pandemic. So yeah. This chair rocks. I'll buy it for you. Let me know. Sure enough, Rob ordered the chair, and if all goes well and it's too cold for porch pirates to steal packages from our foyer as they were doing this past summer, the chair should be arriving today. It might even be waiting at my house for me right now. Rob, I cannot thank you enough. Let's all hope this fixes my back so I will not miss any more shows, and more importantly, so I'll shut up about my aching, aching back. We also got an email from Amanda who writes, Hey Chuck, hey Alex, appreciate your show so much, especially during a pandemic. It is perfectly met to my optimism for this time. Love contributor Brian Muir too. I'm wondering if it is at all possible for you to forward this email to him. Amanda then explains how she is a Canadian researcher who studies the impacts of FIFA, that's the international governing body of football or soccer, and the Olympic Games on informal labor, specifically with women in sex work. So we forwarded her email to Brian Muir, and we'll keep you all updated on what happens next. If you hear someone on our show and you'd like to follow up with our guests directly with a question of your own, or you're doing research on a related topic and would like to discuss it with them, feel free to contact us, and we will definitely forward your email to whoever was on our show that you want to talk to. That doesn't mean they will reply, but we promise to do our best in making the connection for you. It's the very least we can do for all of your support here of This Is Hell, which has been manufacturing dissent since 1996. Email us at chuck at thisishell.com with your comments, queries, guests, or topic suggestions, or anything really, and we'll likely share your thoughts on air. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity and Talk Radio. So clearly and sadly... Noam's gone insane. This is hell coming up. There is no going back to whatever normal was before the pandemic. We'll also have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is, what are you awake thinking about at 3 o'clock in the damn morning? What are you awake thinking about at 3 o'clock in the damn morning? And we'll tell you what's coming up this week here on This is Hell. This is not the media. This is hell. Hell, vaccinations have been a major contributor to cutting infections of coronavirus in half since their rollout in late December, giving us all promise that the end soon may be in sight. However, infection rates are still higher than they were during the spring and summer's peaks when we went into lockdown and we're now coming out of lockdown, so who knows what's going to happen next. And it seems every time there's good news about, say, a vaccine, the next day there's awful news of a new vaccine-resistant variant. Here to help us consider exactly what the past, present, and future of the pandemic was 
is and could be cultural theorist Lynn Paramore wrote the article Epidemic of Despair Could Haunt America Long After COVID, which was posted at the Institute for New Economic Thinking website, which you can find at ineteconomics.org, where Lynn is a senior research analyst. Thanks for being on our show today, Lynn. Well, thank you so much for having me. Lynn's first book of cultural history, Reading the the Sphinx, Ancient Egypt and 19th Century Literary Culture was named a notable scholarly book in 2008 by the Chronicle of Higher Education, and she has collaborated with some of the country's leading economists on her e-books, including a past guest on our show, Garel Peravitz, on the e-book New Economic Visions. You can follow Lynn on Twitter at Lynn Paramore. Again, that's with three R's, actually two R's and then another one. You write, long before the virus, many Americans were sinking under waves of despair. Back in 2018, when the UK announced they would have a ministry, a minister of loneliness to address a mental health crisis, some in the US, they were scoffing at the idea. They were making jokes about it. Did the pandemic, did it, did it create a global mental health crisis? Did it exacerbate an already existing global health crisis, mental health crisis? Or did it reveal a mental health crisis that already existed and was already a major challenge? I think it, it did uh, the, the latter two things that you mentioned. I think it amplified a crisis that already existed and, you know, sort of pulled back the curtain on some problems that had been brewing for quite some time. Um, if we, a lot of this goes back really to the Great Recession and uh, you know, great swaths of the United States and and uh, other countries never really recovered. Uh, something, it became very apparent to social researchers that something was very wrong when life expectancies uh, started to dip in uh, in the United States. We started to see life expectancies going down. Uh, in 2015, and then it happened again in 2016, and yet again in 2017. And to put this in historical perspective, it hadn't been since the Spanish flu that we'd seen in America such a long decline of life expectancy uh, going down. So that began to really tip people off. Something is amiss. That's not supposed to happen in wealthy countries. We're supposed to live longer we're supposed to have access to cutting edge medicine. Uh, so uh, there, the two Princeton economists, Anne Case and Angus Deaton, really begin, began to home in on what was happening. And they coined the term deaths of despair in a 2015 study that they did to talk about uh, people dying from suicide, drug overdoses, and alcohol-related ailments at record rates. And these are obviously all connected to mental health issues. Um, people were reporting feeling sicker, more stressed out, more prone to chronic pain, uh, just unable to cope with life and work. And uh, it was white men and women in midlife that were uh, seeing the highest rates of these deaths of despair. Uh, and it was in, an interesting phenomenon because their incomes were somewhat higher than let's say Hispanics and Africans and African-Americans without college degrees, but they were feeling a sense of chronic loss, um, a sense that no matter what they did, they couldn't get ahead. And uh, we can sort of see the problems that began to brew with this particular group uh, feeling such stress, it's very likely connected to the fact that uh, a, a large number of them became Trump voters and, and expressing their distress and outrage that way. Um, and we're seeing, um, we, we've seen that the opioid crisis, uh, you know, helped drive some of these deaths of despair. And now we're seeing uh, yet another wave of despair created amplified and, uh, you know, again, as you said, uh, re revealing the, the fissures in our society um, through the pandemic. And it looks like you, you had mentioned COVID long haulers a little while ago in your program. And there's a sense in which we're all going to be COVID long haulers in the economic and social sense, unless we happen to be very rich. Um, I think that there's a lot of uh, evidence that the aftermath of the pandemic is going to be with us for decades to come. 
Do you think that we were in active denial of the ongoing mental health crisis that was happening before the pandemic? And and can that kind of denialism, can that continue, uh, I hate to use this phrase, after the pandemic? Yes, I do think there has been quite a bit of denial about the, the mental health crisis, and it's reflected in the state of our healthcare system in general. I mean, one of the first things that you need to address mental health is uh, appropriate healthcare. And in the United States, no matter how many times Americans say in poll after poll, survey after survey, that they don't like our current system of healthcare and they want something along the lines of a universal healthcare program, um, a, a single payer program, Politicians ignore that cry and that plea. Even politicians like Joe Biden uh, have ignored that cry and and pretend that this is something, uh, some kind of a radical notion or it's impossible, which is of course absurd. Uh, We are an outlier uh, among wealthy industrialized nations in in not having a universal health care program. So we, we are definitely, I mean, that's just one aspect of how we're in denial. And of course, that is playing out in the pandemic too. You know, we have an inadequate healthcare program. We have inadequate social safety nets. You know, we're, we're, we're again, we're, we stand out among nations uh, that have resources uh, on earth. We're, we're, Really, American exceptionalism takes a very dark connotation in this sense. And I do think that we're seeing people break down under the stress of a crisis like this. They had very little to sort of tide them over or hold them up in the event of one missed paycheck, you know, much less month after month after month of closed businesses, um, reduced income lost jobs, et cetera. We're, we, our system is not set up to handle a crisis at all. You, well, what does that say about our system then? What does it say about a system that cannot handle crisis? Isn't that, isn't that supposed to be the ultimate test of any system if it can work during crisis? Well, <laughs> you put it very plainly. And I, I think that's the reality that, that we've been sticking our heads under the sand like a bunch of ostriches not facing. Yes, I think that is a reality. Our current capitalist system with its concentration of wealth and uh, money-driven politics is not equipped to handle a crisis. You know, I, I like to quote Justice Brandeis who said, you can have a democracy or you can have the concentration of wealth, but you cannot have both. And we're, I think we really have to reckon with this fundamental problem that our system is geared towards enriching those at the very top and catering to their needs and the rest of the people can just go to hell. And we're seeing this play out right now. I mean, to imagine the anger that people feel uh, watching the stock market soar when they've just lost a job, and, or, you know, and, and they don't even know if they're going to get a paltry stimulus check from the government. This is the kind of anger, t- in my opinion, that drives a lot of the distrust and the divide and the spinning off into uh, unhealthy conspiracy theories and so on. It, it's the thing that it's, it's the sort of thing that happens when people start to break down and they don't know where to turn and they don't feel that their representatives are listening to them. Uh, who do they trust? Who do they turn to? Uh, sometimes they end up turning towards authoritarian figures, uh, people who do not have their best interest at heart, but can exploit their pain, someone like Donald Trump. And frankly, I worry that if the current administration can't take on a transformative role in addressing these inequities and really taking on the tax structure, um, I just spoke to sociologist Shannon Manat, who is studying the pandemic and its effects, and she agrees that um, this is what the Biden administration has to do. And anything short of that, it puts us in a very dangerous situation. You know, people may think that Donald Trump was bad, 
Uh, history shows us that's not actually as bad as it gets. There are people even more dangerous who can come along when a population is, is stressed and strained to the breaking point. And so if we don't get something done for ordinary people in the next four years, we're going to be in a very dangerous place. So I had like 45 questions written for you. Now I'm <laughs> writing like seven follow-ups because I've got to ask you, you brought up so many interesting things. I want to talk to you about representation in a moment. But yeah. you mentioned concentration of wealth. To what extent do you think our avoiding of pointing towards or blaming a concentration of wealth is at the heart of all of our problems? Because one of the things I've been thinking about lately is for whatever reason, some people are, they believe that a return to the fairness doctrine will somehow make media far more responsible or more accountable or more accurate. And it seems like they're not focusing on the real problem that we have in the media, and that's the corporate control of the media and the concentration of wealth in the media. To you, what explains why there is no focus on concentration of wealth and we'll even come up with ideas like really obsolete ideas like the fairness to reimplement the fairness doctrine in order to avoid having any criticism of the, the corporate control and concentration of wealth? Yeah, I think this, I, I think it is very much at the heart of the problem. And it's certainly not discussed enough. And, you know, for fairly obvious reasons, it was a really interesting article that I read this morning over at uh, Jacobin. And uh, the, the president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking uh, was quoted in that article, pointing out the fact that, um, you know, the, the, the cable news networks are very reluctant to discuss things like Medicare for all and programs which would really help ordinary people because the, the advertisers uh, are coming from the pharmaceutical industry and uh, health insurers. So, I mean, the, you know, the, the article pointed out that during some of the presidential debates, anytime this subject came up, and of course, Bernie Sanders was really the only one who was wholeheartedly embracing Medicare for all, um, the, the pundits, the, uh, the journalists who were conducting these debates, you know, constantly spun the questions in the conversation in a way that reflected the talking points of the pharmaceutical industry, of the, of the health insurers, and this is not an accident. Um, and then meanwhile, every time you went to commercial break, you would have an advertisement from a pharmaceutical industry. So, you know, a voice like Bernie Sanders can get drowned out in all of that. Um, and it's very, very difficult uh, for the interest of ordinary people to even be discussed in that kind of situation, uh, much less promoted. Um, I would point people, um, your listeners, to a very interesting study by Martin Gillens and Benjamin Page. Um, they did a study back in 2014, which really showed you how rep our representatives uh, pay attention to the policy choices and the policy preferences of the rich and tend to ignore the policy preferences of uh, ordinary people. Now, this may seem obvious to you and your listeners, but there's actual data, there's actual concrete evidence that this happens. Um, similarly, your listeners might um, be interested in looking at the work of uh, political economist Thomas Ferguson, who is an expert on money and politics. And he has these amazing graphs where he shows you, you know, the influence of money, the more money pumped into um, the support of a particular candidate, the more likely they are to win. I mean, it's, it's just very simple. It's, it's shockingly stark and shockingly simple and shockingly obvious. But yet, because of the control of our political system, because of the control of our media, you hardly hear a peep about it in the public sphere. And we interviewed Gillens and Page about that study back in 2014 or 2015. I can't remember when, but you can find that interview at our website, thisishell.com. And this is going to, I hope I hope this isn't redundant, but as you write, accused of being bitterly divided when Americans agreed on something like a single national program to provide health care coverage run by the government, their preferences were dismissed by their representatives, including the new president, as radical or impossible. Things that make life worthwhile and bearable, like an affordable education or a dignified retirement, Retirement grew increasingly out of reach. So do you believe the public is more radical than their elected representatives? And if that's the case, what explains that inaccurate 
representation by elected uh, politicians of their constituents' uh, beliefs and views? Is it just because of what you were talking about with Gillens and Page, that it's just the power of money silences the public? Yes, and, and, and in answer to the first part of your question, do I think the public is more radical? Actually, I don't think the public is more radical in the sense that I don't, I don't believe that, that a viewpoint uh, like the support of Medicare for all is radical in that the majority of the population support it. You know what I mean? So in that sense, it's a mainstream view. It's not radical at all. It's, main, it's mainstream in America. It's mainstream in, in much of the rest of the world. It's only politicians who label it radical to make us think that it's some kind of a fringe idea. It's, in, it's by no means a fringe idea. The ideas that the politicians promote which is this bloated and dysfunctional healthcare system, uh, which rips people off and and can't handle uh, you know a, a pandemic, uh, much less even ordinary ailments that we face. Um, you know that to me is the radical position, radically wrong, radically out of step with what people need and what they say that they want. And and the answer I think as to why this happens, it is money. It is the fact that these politicians are dependent on large donations. Um, this has been uh, this problem has been growing for a couple of decades, and there has been very little done to address it. And until we address that problem, we're going to keep banging our heads against the wall. I'm afraid, um, as regular folks trying to get our voices heard. And as you mentioned earlier, in a 2015 study, Princeton economist Ann Case and Ang- Angus Deaton sounded the alarm about mid- midlife white men and women without college degrees dying by suicide, drug overdoses, and alcohol-related ailments at record rates. The conservative pushback against canceling, say, student loan debt is that it would help out those who have the most advanced degrees, the most as they are in the most, uh, the most advanced, and they are in the most student loan debt, and considering the growing income inequality based on level of education, the right is opposing student loan debt using a logic of it being a benefit mostly to the already rich, because people who have postgraduate degrees are in more student loan debt because they've been in school longer. So they're saying this is just welfare for the rich and we shouldn't have student loan debt cancellation. Is income inequality then an impediment, an obstacle to universal programs? Does inequality lead to means testing, possibly undermining the concept of even the public sphere? Gosh, what a convoluted uh, (laughs) argument those conservatives are making. I'm trying to parse that. I mean, the idea that it's the rich who have college degrees, um, you know, I, 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 I can't point to a statistic right off the top of my head, but I imagine you could very easily find evidence that large swaths of the population who have college degrees are suffering economically and uh, even suffering downward mobility. They're slipping down the economic ladder and they're by no means rich or secure. They, they can't find secure jobs. They can't find jobs that have, um, <clears throat> you know, adequate benefits, et cetera. I just think that's absurd. Um, so, you know, I, 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 ju- I just, the, the means testing idea, um, I do find means testing problematic. I, re- I did an interview some years ago with um, some economists who tend to lean left of center, Joseph Stiglitz, the Nobel Prize winner being among them. And they agreed that means testing on something like Social Security, for example, is really sort of a backdoor way for conservatives to promote the idea that we're really not in, in this together. That some people, you know, get benefits and some people don't, and it tends to divide people. So I tend to be against means testing. You can look at something like the public schools, and we don't really do means testing for education. We say that everybody who's a citizen has a right to have an education uh, free provided to them. We don't ask what your parents' salary is, et cetera, et cetera. We're all in this together. Now, that public school system is has been under a tremendous attack from conservatives um, for reasons which are, you know, um, both obvious and disconcerting. Um, they don't like the kind of unity 
that these kinds of programs produce. They don't like the feeling that people have that we're all in it together when we all go to public schools. Um, I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina in the 70s and 80s. Um, and you, you had very few private schools. You know, it wasn't a thing. The, the county that I um, grew up in, Wake County, uh, had a, an excellent public school system. It was struggling with, you know, some of the, um, some of the issues related to desegregation, but doing a very robust job of addressing those problems and using busing and, and other things to, um, to iron out those issues. And it became a very robust public school system. I went to public school K through 12 and managed to get a, a, a very decent education. And uh, now that kind of school system is becoming a rarity. And you have um, all this pressure for online education, which is concerning. That has increased during the pandemic. And that to me is an opportunity for um, corporations who make education software and so on to, to, to make a fortune on educational programs that may or may not benefit students. And in fact, I think there's research that shows that uh, some of this online learning is actually detrimental. But um, anyway, we sort of, sort of straying from the, the question you asked about means testing. Um, I don't like means testing because I like to feel that we as citizens have certain rights. They include a decent education, uh, decent health care, a, a dignified retirement, and uh, we can and and we have a right to expect these things together and know that this is part of what it means to be a citizen in in the United States, and we don't have to pick and choose, you know, who is entitled to those rights and who isn't. You write that in their book, Economist Case and Deaton, uh, this book that was released in March 2020, Deaths of Despair and the Future of Capitalism. In their book, they named America's greed-driven opioid epidemic, job instability, a predatory healthcare system, shredded social safety nets, unbalanced labor markets, and globalization policies as factors contributing to the tragedy. The United States stood out among nations for its inequities. As the publisher's webpage states, the book reveals, quote, how the flaws in capitalism are fatal for America's working class. To what extent do you think the working class actually recognizes that capitalism, as it is now being applied, is a threat to their, their friends and their families and communities' lives? And if they're not recognizing that deadliness of capitalism, what keep, keeps them from that recognition? Well, that's a very good question. I think we saw, uh, for example, with the Occupy movement, that there was a growing recognition among a lot of people that capitalism, as it's currently structured in the United States, um, is a rigged game. And there was a recognition that these large banks and, and Wall Street firms had um, a very destructive influence on our economic and, and social fabric. They had not been um, penalized. No one went to jail after the crisis that threw so many innocent people out of their homes and, and uh, lost them their life savings and jobs. Uh, so I think there was a growing recognition. You know, of course, there is a tremendous effort on the part of m many conservatives and, and frankly, many people who call themselves Democrats too to demonize any criticism of capitalism. You know, you have somebody like Elizabeth Warren saying she's a, a dyed-in-the-wool capitalist and, and proudly announcing that. Um, so we, we are exposed to, you know, a bombardment of misinformation about what things like democratic socialism means, socialism, uh, alternatives to this capitalist system that we have, um, even the idea of reigning in the capitalists is considered heresy. And there's a lot of money to push these idea, ideas forward, both in the media and among politicians. So you have this barrage, and I think people can sense that the messages they're getting are not true and kind of don't jibe with their experience. But unfortunately, that drives a certain segment of the population down the internet rabbit hole where they start getting into, you know, wild conspiracy theories and so on. And, you know, the, the conspiracy theory problem is, is, is a very interesting one because 
it comes in part from a recognition recognition that people have that the system is not working for them like that that's that's correct they are correct in having that feeling and having that understanding but where you go from there um, where you place the blame what sources you're looking at to get information becomes very critical and unfortunately some people stray into places where they're putting um, the blame on anything you know from some small cabal of cigar chomping you know in, international folks to lizard aliens you know the list goes on and on so that's really unfortunate because um the the, the it's really the concentration of wealth as as we've been talking about and a system which um, without intervention, a capitalist system without intervention, inevitably goes in that direction. Thomas Piketty's book, the, the great French economist, um, Capital in the 21st Century, had just reams of data showing this, that that's what happens. C capitalism leads to the concentration of wealth without government intervention. Full stop, end of story. I mean, the only other option is to wait for something utterly cataclysmic, like a war, to just completely devastate the um, the economy, and uh, you know, force people to reckon with it after immense suffering. But it really requires government intervention, and so that's why conservatives and libertarians and so on push the idea that government is evil so consistently because they know uh or those they're pulling the strings for some of these groups know that that's the only thing standing in in the way of uh the concentration of wealth is government intervention and you quote sociologist Manat saying the supply chain for drugs just like the supply chain for toilet paper has been significantly interrupted by covid19 causing further chaos. And when it comes to our problems with drug addiction, you add, for example, the United Nations Office on Drug and Crime reports a decline in the international production of heroin and disruptions to its distribution due to factors like reduced air travel and border scrutiny. Now, you'd think that would be a good thing, but as you continue, this has brought to the drug scene more fentanyl, a synthetic yeah. opioid pain reliever, which is 50 to 100 times stronger than morphine. Drug smugglers like fentanyl, because it's cheap to transport, a small amount packs a powerful punch. Manat observes the uh, that fentanyl was already a huge problem before the pandemic and responsible for most drug overdose increases over the past three years. A friend of mine passed away from using fentanyl, and I actually have a nephew who, when he was like 15, they gave him fentanyl because uh, he was having a foot surgery, and I was freaked out by it. But you also add that now the deadly substance of fentanyl is even more prevalent, often mixed in with other drugs as a filler, and showing up not just in heroin supplies, but also in uh, cocaine and meth. Some over doses may result from people not knowing what they're getting, which scares the hell out of me because I know a lot of people who like to indulge in not only those drugs but other pills and they may not know what they're getting. Is fentanyl making all synthetic drugs more dangerous than ever? Is the opioid crisis during the pandemic not only continuing but increasing and potentially becoming even more deadly? Well, I think that's unfortunately the picture that we're looking at. I mean, this fentanyl is is really a tremendous problem, and it's impacting populations that weren't necessarily uh, the worst impacted by the opioid crisis prior to the pandemic. For example, um, Shannon Manat was pointing out that um, some Black populations, you know, who had had uh, drug users who had had reliable sources of um of their drugs uh suddenly saw their supplies contaminated with fentanyl um it, when the crisis when the pandemic hit and so that is a really dangerous situation and and they don't know what they're buying they buy a pill and they think it's one thing and it turns out to be another and you're going to get um overdose you know, overdose deaths, unfortunately, from this situation. So it's quite dangerous. And, uh, you know, for, for those reasons that you pointed out, the drug smugglers have, um, you know, their supply chains have been disrupted, just as you said, like, you know, Shannon pointed out, just like toilet paper and everything else. So um, this is a, and, 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 you know, there are other issues that people have who use drugs. Um, 
they can't get to their treatment programs or their, you know, local nonprofit is not open at the moment. So they can't do their needle exchange program. Uh, treatment protocols have, have been disrupted because of the pandemic. And then, you know, one of the saddest things is using drugs alone due to the, you know, social isolation of the shutdown and not having a friend or somebody, you know, nearby in case you overdose. And so, that's that's a really sad thing that's happening too is people dying alone and another population um that manat points out um, as vulnerable right now is uh, mothers uh not because they're using fentanyl but because they are increasing their alcohol use they were actually in women were shown to have an increase in alcohol use after the great recession so this was already happening before the pandemic, but recent studies have shown that it's been um, that it's been increasing even more the alcohol use during the pandemic. And mothers have a higher than average rate of the use of benzodiazepines uh, like Valium and Xanax, and you mix those with alcohol, and you have a greater potential for a drug overdose there. So there are populations that are. Um, seeing you know increased fatalities or risk of fatality we, we can't we don't really have the numbers yet um because the data isn't out yet um to sort of break this down by gender and race but it's looking like those are two vulnerable populations um black drug users whose um supplies of drugs have been interrupted and and mothers who were stressed by caregiving uh, struggling work and childcare um, during the pandemic that unfortunately we may see not only increased drug overdoses, but, um, but chronic problems that, that result. For example, women who are using more alcohol during the pandemic, this could result in liver problems and chronic disease uh, decades down the road. So there's your long shadow, the long haul effect of COVID. Another vulnerable population that you point out are rural communities. You write that COVID-19 is likely altering the geography and demographics of drug overdoses, a picture that has shifted over the course of the pandemic. Early on, infection rates had a high impact in cities, but over time, the case and death rates have become higher in non-metro areas. What explains rural areas now seemingly having a worse drug problem than urban areas? Because we're always told it's the reverse. Is it simply the, the loneliness that's compounded by being in an area of smaller population? Well, it's not totally clear, but one of the things that Manat's research um, has been showing, and, and, you know, and again, she was looking at the opioid crisis before the pandemic, is that you have sort of different types of rural populations, and some of them are more vulnerable to drug overdose deaths than others. Um, the ones that are more vulnerable tend to be the areas that are dependent on manufacturing jobs um, or kind of crappy service industry jobs. Uh, those in, in, in populations where you've seen, you know, the effects of globalization and so on, you don't tend to see the deaths of despair uh, from drug overdose quite as much in rural communities that are based on farming and that kind of have more social cohesion. She's even looked at factors like um, the, the participation of people in sporting events and church, um, you know, any kind of community gatherings that create social cohesion as being a protective um, factor in, um, you know, communities being more resistant to drug overdose deaths. Um, during the, during the uh, coronavirus pandemic, the scene has slightly shifted and um, she is looking, Shannon Manat is looking at uh, rural areas that are more dependent on um, tourism and uh, vacation type recreation activities. I mean, she's been looking at the state of New York. So you think of a place like um, the Catskills in New York, uh, rural communities that, um, you know, in the wintertime, people would normally be going up there and going skiing and snowmobiling and things like that. But all of that has been disrupted because of the pandemic. So those populations, which may have been doing relatively okay before the pandemic, economically and, and in terms of their social fabric are now more vulnerable. I mean, they've, they've now lost, you know, several seasons in a row. So that is going to have a tremendous impact and it tends to, um, tends to create 
all the isolation, all the distress, all the problems that um, can contribute to drug overdose deaths, unfortunately. And we've spoken uh, with, let's see, sociologist William Robinson. We talked to Mimi Scheller. We talked to Amelia Moore, all about this kind of inequality that is built in, that is baked into an economy that is based on tourism. You were just saying how all these tourist places are going to be affected, how this is an undermining of tourist economies. Do you think you're go- we're going to see less of a dependence on tourism in the future, which is something that the economy has shifted to greatly under neoliberalism. And how does our world change when the the place we escape to, we can no longer escape to anymore? Yeah, that's a good question. And a lot of it does depend on how robust our response is um, to this crisis in the real near-term future. I mean, we, we are in a race right now, um, as I'm sure your, your listeners are well aware between getting these vaccinations out and uh, new variants of the virus that um, are are threatening to outrun our our vaccination programs. So a lot hangs in the balance right now. And it would, of course, you know, it doesn't have to play out the way it could play out if we could, um, you know, do really transformative things. Like if we had an infrastructure program, for example, that helped put people back to work who've been unemployed or underemployed during the pandemic, that that would be a very good thing. Something like the new deal. Now we, we're in a place in history. We've done this before. We know how to do it and we know how successful and effective it could be. So we'll see how, um, how effectively the Biden administration can push that kind of a program. Um, You know, there are a lot of other things we can do. Um, You know, unionization is a big issue. Um, Shannon Manap was, uh, we we were talking about the fact that um, there was research showing that the black middle class had been decimated by the loss of unionized jobs. There was a study done by William Lazonic for the Institute of New Economic Thinking. And right now we have a situation uh, where Amazon workers in Alabama are trying to unionize right now. It doesn't seem that the Biden administration has been as vocal in support of them as he could be. So that's another area I would like really like to see this administration getting behind unionization because having secure union jobs with decent benefits and de- decent pay would go a long way to preventing this uh, long haul COVID effect on our society and economy. You quote Manat pointing out, we didn't come together in the same, after the pandemic hit. We didn't come together on the same way that we did after 9-11. That tragedy created divisions, but it feels like between the pandemic and Trump and the murdering of unarmed black men by police, we've had a year of the mag- magnification of political and cultural and social divisions. In your opinion, why didn't we come together like we did after 9-11? Why were we being told over and over by the media and politicians that we're all in this toge- together when we clearly weren't? Yeah, you know, it's um, 2020 was just a hell of a year. Um, It was really a perfect storm. You had uh, people in communities that never really recovered from the Great Recession uh, pummeled yet again um, by this pandemic. And, you know, a, a, a kind of boiling over of racial tensions, this this militarized and aggressive police force that has been, you know, that's been a form of, of domestic terrorism in our, in our country. Unfortunately, our, our, our some members and uh, of the police force are really terrorizing citizens. And this finally came to a boil in all its ugly racialized, uh, you know, uh, sense over the last year. And that has just, uh, been a source of tremendous tension and distress and dismay among uh, people who are waiting for a robust response to this problem and and don't seem to get it. The deaths, just the murders keep happening again and again and again. And they're shown on videotape, on on camera phones, in ways that, you know, we, we really can't turn away from it anymore. So I think this combination of factors has come together. And of course, the constant stoking of the feeling of division in the media. I mean, on the one hand, yes, there is division. But on the other hand, the places where there actually is unity, 
meaningful unity, uh, such as the polls showing that Americans are um, the vast majority want universal health care, that's totally ignored. So the places in which we can, we are coming together and willing to come together uh, in productive ways get downplayed in the media and among politicians. So that's a problem too. So yes, we, we're we're both divided, and in 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 important and. Uh, disturbing ways during the pandemic, but united in ways that we don't get credit for. One last question for you, Lynn. We've been speaking with cultural theorist Lynn Paramore, who wrote the article, Epidemic of Despair Could Haunt America Long After COVID, which you can find at INET Economics. That's the website for the Institute for New Economic Thinking, where Lynn is a senior research analyst. You can follow Lynn on Twitter at Lynn. Paramore. One last question for you, Lynn, as we do with all of our guests. Our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. One of the things that you mentioned earlier is there are worse things in our history than President Trump when it comes to an authoritarian leader coming to power, being elected to power. I have been having a major issue with this, and I need you to help me out. How was Donald Trump worse than George W. Bush? We had a president who lied us into a war, who created an international network of torture sites. And now that person is getting near 60% approval ratings amongst Democrats. I've told people back when Trump was elected that he was not going to be as bad as Bush and he wasn't going to be as bad as Reagan because I feared that in the future, like Reagan, like his image has been rehabilitated and all of a sudden Democrats embrace him. I feared the exact same thing was going to happen with George W. Bush. And I cannot foresee 20 years from now, 16 years from now, people talking about how Donald Trump was a great uh, president compared to who has become a president, who would become a president since. So why do we view Donald Trump's presidency as worse than a president who just lied us into a war and who created an international system of torture? Yeah, that's a good question. And it probably has to do with the fact that Trump um, was so brash and his personality was such that he said inflammatory things and seemed, you know, more unhinged. But <laughs> frankly, what scares me is an authoritarian figure who does not seem unhinged and, and is very organized and methodical about what he or she is doing. That's actually more terrifying to me. And frankly, um, I think one of the reasons that we got Donald Trump as a president is because we had had Barack Obama before him. And Barack Obama was a centrist and really didn't get enough done for ordinary people. He didn't handle the financial crisis appropriately, in, in my view. Um, the Occupy Wall Street movement broke out for a reason, because large swaths of the population felt that they had been thrown under the bus and that banks, uh, you know, these gazillion, multi-gazillion dollar corporations had been bailed out. Now that's real and that anger was real and, and, and legitimate. And it helped, uh, I think, propel Donald Trump into office. And this is what I fear happening again, that we have another president who uh, seems to be a centrist and may talk progressively, but ultimately, really doesn't have a transformative agenda in, in his heart and soul. Um, and, and I'm afraid that if he doesn't get anything done for ordinary people, the anger is going to be even more profound at the end of his presidency uh, than it was at the end of Barack Obama's second term. And we could get somebody even worse than Donald Trump. I hate to say that, but you know, you're, you're asking what keeps me up at night. That is something that keeps me up at night. It's an, it's, it's not an inevitable fate. It's, it's an avoidable fate, but it's one I think we have to recognize as, as a real possibility. So not only did you answer the question from hell for you, but you did for our listening audience as well. Thank you very much, Lynn. I really appreciate that. Thanks for being on our show. Cultural theorist, Lynn Paramore wrote the article, Epidemic of Despair Could Haunt America Long After COVID. And again, you can follow her on Twitter at Lynn Paramore. Thank you so much for being on our show. This is a fantastic conversation. I really enjoy your writing. Oh, really great to be with you. Thanks for having me. All right. Take care. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing. This is hell. 
Alex, please remind our listening audience what is this week's question from Hell and how are our listeners answering so far? Uh, this week's question from Hell is, what are you thinking about at 3 o'clock in the damn morning? <laughs> uh, coincidentally, that's what I thought about is uh, this question from Hell at 3 o'clock in the morning when I was up. <laughs> okay, so, hold on. I was thinking about that. why that car was sitting up front revving his engine at 3 in the morning for 45 solid minutes this morning. Uh, Bradley A. says, I'm thinking, what was that 70s Japanese math rock postmodern pre-post-grunge experimental song Alex chose? Uh, the name of that song, Bradley, is uh, Joe Tex's Papa's Dream, which is, <laughs> again, the only song that I've been listening to for the last, jeez, uh, since Thursday. <laughs> Wally R. says, what was the real meaning behind Lawrence Welk's bubbles? <laughs> Hashtag soap trails. <laughs> uh, Zach N. says, what the F is my cat doing right now and Why? <laughs> Krimsky K says, figuring out the best joke to answer this question. Another fail. Never mind. I'll fail again next time. <laughs> what are you awake thinking about at three o'clock in the damn morning? Eric T says, whether my kid will wake me up in an hour or so after going to bed at three. Adam A says, was this a question from hell? This is hell would have asked listeners 13 years ago. Um, I don't know why. Jack W says, is Obama <laughs> truly ready to take a call at this time of night? Damn, that is a throwback, Jack. I remember. Do you remember that three o'clock uh, scandal? No. What was that? I, there was just a question of whether he'd be awake at 3 o'clock to oh, answer a phone right. call. Oh, that's right. Yes, that's right. That was so ridiculous. Chris S. says, why won't Chuck laugh at my clever question from hell answers? <laughs> missed, missed those ones, Chris. <laughs> and uh, Sasha M. says, deciding which persuasion to watch, the Amanda Root for the umpteenth time or the Sally Hawkins one, never seen. Why? Somebody had to explain to me. Remember last week, one of the answers was, this is not arugula, this is kale that that was a this is hell reference and for some dumb reason i did not catch it because my mind was a million miles away last week because i was sick as hell and then the person who left us that question from hell answer actually sent me a graphic that says this is in our in our font and everything that says this is not arugula this is kale so thank you for listener lisa who described a joke to me that i didn't get last week maybe that's why I don't like your jokes because I just don't get them. The person with our favorite, it's not my, your problem, it's mine. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. That is currently available at thisishell.com. When you click on support, you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us, but we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show. Thanks to all of you for checking out all of the ways you can support This Is Hell by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. Thanks for the support we received this weekend from Samic. Thanks, Samic. Without support like yours, we got nothing. It's time for nasty, gnarly, nauseous, naughty, nerdy, icky, drippy, sticky, goopy, gloppy, globby, gory, rotten history. And this is really, really rotten history. The kind that you are not going to learn in your K-12 through history classes. In Rotten History, February 8th, 1887, 134 years ago today, Monday, U.S. President Grover Cleveland signed into law the Dawes Act, which authorized the federal government to take control of vast areas of Native American tribal lands in the West. Who knew they needed authorization? I thought you just stole the land that you wanted without the necessary paperwork. I mean, when you're stealing land, you do not want to leave a paper trail of tears. The legislation swept away the traditional system of communal land occupation and use and instead imposed a system of capitalist land ownership in individual surveyed plots, which upended millennia of humanity's relationship with nature in favor of money and greed. Heads of Native American families were allotted land grants in sizes ranging from 40 to 160 acres each, with full ownership granted only after the land had first been held in trust by the U.S. government for 25 years. Land recipients were expected to abandon their traditional way of life and adopt the so-called civilized farming methods of white people. In practice, the Dawes Act actually served to break up the native tribes as social and political entities because that's what capital, capitalism does. It, it tears people and communities apart while opening up vast lands of tracts of western land to white settlers. The amount of land in native land hands has drastically reduced, and much of it was unsuitable for cultivation. During the 47 years in which the Dawes Act remained in force, Native Americans lost some 90 million acres of land formerly theirs by treaty, and some 90,000 people ended up with no land at all. 
Not to mention that the land was destroyed. Monocrop culture led to devastating pollution and was a major contributor to climate change. Other than that, everything worked out horribly. And here we are suffering through a pandemic, waiting to get back to the normal of runaway climate change. Yep, that's Rotten History, and this is Hell. Alex, please tell us who is on tomorrow's Tuesday show, also beginning at 10 a.m. Central Time, Chicago time, here at thisishell.com. Keller Easterling will be on to talk about her book that Chuck uh, wrote in all caps, very important, Medium Design. Knowing how to work on knowing how to work on the world, and we had her on in 2015 for a book, uh, Extra Statecraft. And if you want to, if you've heard about this story, what's happening in Nevada about how Nevada is going to give tech companies control over certain governments within the state of Nevada, so tech companies will have their own governance within certain locations. They're going to be called innovation zones. If you want to know about how much of a threat that is to democracy, go and listen to our interview from 2015 with Keller Easterling about extra extra statecraft because that is a frightening story that's coming out of Nevada that nobody's discussing whatsoever. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-tooth radio show, live stream podcast host, Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. I want to thank Lynn Paramore for being today's guest. Alex Jerry for producing. Thanks to Ronaldo for Rotten History. We told you so. This is my hell. Is on my <laughs> Sorry about that. No. Uh, my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. Uh-huh. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>